This is the Walking Home from the ICU podcast. I'm Kelly Dayton, a nurse practitioner and ICU consultant. I help teams create awake and walking ICUs through evidence-based sedation and mobility practices. By hearing from survivors, clinicians, and researchers, we'll explore how to give ICU patients the best chance to walk out of the ICU and go home to survive and thrive. Welcome to the ICU Revolution. time I entered an ICU was as an 18-year-old nursing student. I had dreamed of working in the ICU as I was drawn to the challenge, high stakes, and intensity of what I understood to be critical care medicine. I also had a very romanticized perspective of nursing and had very little life experience to make me anything but eager to connect with and nurture my patients. As I met my precepting night shift nurse, I am sure she could smell my enthusiasm from a mile away and immediately prefaced our time together by saying, quote, listen, I do ICU so that I don't have to talk to anyone. If you think that this is going to be social hour, you are sadly mistaken, unquote. I was a bit bruised by that statement, but I shut my mouth and set out to learn what I could during those rotations. I immediately saw what she meant. It was all quiet, all night. Patients seemed to be, quote, sleeping. The unit was dark and cold, always possible. I quickly learned the culture of nursing, that the ICU nurses were the ones that were there to keep you alive with incredible skill and they were the types that sought after high adrenaline, high stakes, and high-speed emergencies. I certainly connected with all those attributes. I was young, energetic, and ambitious, yet I left after those few weeks there wondering if I still wanted to work in the ICU because in addition to being an adrenaline junkie, I still wanted human connection. I wanted to help people in all ways as I fight for their lives, and I didn't feel it during those weeks there like I hoped I would. Fast forward a few years, and I was interviewing into a high-acuity MS ICU when the nurse manager asked me, quote, would you be willing to walk patients that are intubated on ventilators, unquote? Though I didn't fully understand the novelty of that question, her enthusiasm reignited a hope that I could be fulfilled in the ICU. I suddenly found myself hitting all my check boxes. It was fast paced, challenging, dynamic, and adrenaline inducing environment, but it wasn't cold. I connected with my patients and helped them in all ways. Best yet, I was learning from my nursing mentors to be human and compassionate. I saw in them the kind of nurse that I wanted to be. I quickly looked around and thought, no, stereotypes are wrong. These nurses are not cold, calloused, or abrasive. Now I've experienced 14 plus different ICUs and I've seen where those stereotypes may come from, but I still don't believe them. I think we don't give nurses the opportunity to develop and utilize all parts of their humanity. Let's hear it from nurses that really get this. This episode, I'm excited to interview James, who is easily stereotyped typed into the quote, classic ICU RN mold, but has broken free and soared into his own heights in his career by independently finding ways to treat his patients as humans and set them up for success. So let's hear it from the delirium whisperer. James, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. You and I have been talking for what years now via Instagram. And I have just really appreciated your insights and all the great work that you're doing as a nurse. And I would love for you to introduce yourself to the listeners. Hi, folks. Good morning. I'm James. Um, 
I am a bedside ICU nurse. I've been a bedside ICU nurse for five years. Before that, I worked in the emergency room. And before that, I was an EMT. So been a professional butt wiper for a little while now. And I, I, not, not to stereotype, but I would think that someone that comes from EMT, ER perspective, <clears throat> you really like the immediate front end sexy things, right? The immediate resuscitation, probably the devices, the big flashy stuff. How did you become interested in changing sedation and mobility practices? Uh, you're absolutely right. It was even just coming to the ICU initially, I was like, oh, what do you mean they're not actively bleeding to death in the lobby? I don't <laughs> understand. They already have a central line. This is weird. Right. But um, for me, it was really eye opening when I left my community hospital for an academic center at the community hospital level. Yeah. You know, we did a fair amount of surgeries. We were doing hearts and vascular stuff and we did have an SBT and a daily awakening trial and all that goodness. But the majority of your patient population was still convalescent home, septic shock intubations, folks where to an extent mobility and sedation isn't, isn't there for, I guess not going to cure them. Mm-hmm. So when I got to an academic hospital and I was just like, what do you mean my patient's 37? What do you mean they're 42? What do you mean they're 32? And they were just getting extubated and they were up. And I was like, that dude's sitting in a chair on the ventilator. I ain't never seen that before. And the order of the day there, when I got there, was already, you know, extubate them as soon as possible. You know, your typical heart stuff, like extubate them, get into the chair, up for meals, get them walking. As soon as they can walk, we're D-lining them and they're gone. And that was just such a different way of doing things than I had been trained at, you know, my small little MICU <laughs> that I was just, you know, full of questions. I was like, well, you know, the basic ones, I think everyone, is this safe? Is this safe? Can we do this? What do you guys mean? You're, you know, cutting off all the sedation and getting them up. And, and then from there, you just got a whole bunch of questions. So I started asking questions and seeing how effective what they were doing was at getting people up and going. And by that measure, out of the ICU. And I think that's what got me interested in it. So you were actually seeing the benefits of it. Yes, definitely. And now you've worked in a number of different units, right? I am a float pool nurse. So I go to my hospital has, I believe, eight ICUs and they're all heavily specialized. So I bop into all of them. And do you see a contrast in in practices? CVICU seems to always be on the front end of this stuff because they're focused on getting them promptly extubated, mobilized, out the doors. I think they track data really well. We need good outcomes, low delirium rates, high function scores in order to keep the those programs going. But what do you see in the other ICUs in comparison? Um, it varies. I mean, the hospital I'm at, we have three CV ICUs of varying acuity and varying device usage. So even just amongst them. Mm. You know, we have a lot of femme, femme, ECMO. We don't get our ECMOs up super often. We do a lot of Craig bed stuff. But in the other ICUs, it gets more challenging. I, you know, we do have a MICU pulmonary type ICU. And those, I think, are your hardest patients to get up because they're just they're just so weak. And they just don't have any, um, what am I looking for there? They don't have any reserve. Like, you're not, even if you're getting them up and moving them, you're probably just leaving them on full support and it almost feels like glorified uh, passive mobility for them. <laughs> like I'm sure there is still a benefit. 
you would know him by that. But like, if you get the little sling in and you sling them up with the crane and you arjo them into the chair and they're on full support the whole time and they barely even have any tone, does their stomach still drop down? Does their diaphragm have the chance to open up? Yes, I'm sure that's all good. But that is just much more laborious than you see in the walkie-talkie heart ICUs and like the abdominal transplant ICU. Like, oh God, these poor little liver patients. They're just, Mm -hmm. they've been weak and sickly for so long that beyond being physically weak and sickly, they're just, it's hard for them to visualize themselves. I'm like, what do you mean? You don't think you can get up? Well, I just haven't been out of bed in forever. And I'm like, well, let's fucking change that. Yeah, there's there's a trained helplessness exactly they've just been so sick and everyone's trying to everyone's trying to be nice they're doing things for them that like you said it's a trained helplessness and that's a big obstacle too every icu has different barriers and i'm not even going to talk about neuro they're just they're special but every definitely still applies to them but it you know you've got your endocrinal hypertension you've got some real indications for sedation a lot of those patients and yet um we can really still get hooked on sedation in those kind of cases you know it's when you start it it's hard to stop it and how have you seen that be the case you know you you've talked to me a lot about awakening trials and it sounds like you've been pretty progressive in in your approach what are some of the barriers that you see when it comes to mastering the abcdf bundle and doing those awakening trials and things like that um i would say the overarching regardless of unit and also regardless of hospital this was still a problem at my old job too less so now but the biggest issue i find is that there's a disconnect between where the attendings and where the physicians want the patient to be going and where it is communicated to the nurses that the patient is you know they might be saying okay well this patient is ready to get up and move and we're gonna you know i'm like i'm gonna turn off your sedation order before i even come to rounds because this patient should be off sedation we should be up and moving but you haven't come by and seen that they're losing their fucking mind and I need to keep them calm while we coach them through this extubation. So now I have the fun you know, decision of, do I just keep infusing this drug that I'm certain they need until you get there? Um, that's, a huge, fig- that's a really good yeah. point. And that's something that I am constantly on a rampage about is how we are conducting these awakening trials and how we're pushing this on to nurses. I experienced that as a travel nurse as well. We're doing it at five o'clock in the morning. No one else is by the bedside. You hardly ever have even an RT available to help you. You're one lone nurse and you're ripping off the bandaid. You're unmasking that delirium that's happening. And they're, like you said, losing their mind. They're thrashing, they're agitated. And so for this to be mandated without any kind of support, how does that affect your job as a nurse? It makes the job a lot harder. I mean, I, at first glance, I love the idea of every patient 5 a.m., do an awakening trial, see where we are, because that way you have something ready when yep. they do come to rounds. Like you can be like, hey, we are here. We aren't here. This is my thoughts. And I think that's the other disconnect, too, is that and I've, I've fallen victim to this at times. A lot of folks don't know how to properly assess RAS and pain. They are different scales and they take different medications and telling your doctor your patient's agitated and getting a DEX order when really they're in a fuck ton of pain. Mm-hmm. Doesn't help anybody. Absolutely. No, we, um, I've had people say, well, we can't avoid sedation on our patients because they have pain. And yeah, the understanding, even from the nursing side, that the less psychomotor activity there is, the more patients do not move, the less pain that they're in. And if there's any kind of movement, it requires sedation. 
And if we sedate them and they stop moving, therefore we've treated their discomfort and their pain. You've masked it. You haven't treated anything. Absolutely. So So I think that's the biggest thing. Are you struggling to have these conversations at the bedside with your team? Most teams, no. Most teams I find very receptive to, okay, and it's nice too, because right now you have the new uh, residents and fellows who are kind of leaning on you to help them learn how to assess a patient. So they're kind of following your thing, which is my favorite time of year, actually. (laughs) But I find that the teams, for the most part, are very receptive to like, hey, here's my assessment of their pain, including what Night Shift said all night about their pain. Here is how I am interpreting their awakening trial. And this is this is what I got. What do you guys think we should do going forward? I don't get a lot of pushback on the presenting it. I I struggle sometimes to understand when I think a patient is ready to move forward and they don't think so. And I'm like, can you explain to me even in like simple, I'm not a surgeon terms. Why? And they're like, well, because they aren't ready. What the fuck does that mean? Like, can you tell me what makes them not ready? So maybe I can spend my next 11 hours trying to fix that something. Yeah. But no, I, and you know, every, every team, every place is going to have their people. Like there's one service where it drives me nuts. I go through the A through F and then the NP verbatim, almost verbatim goes through the A through F and just happens to be talking now to the attending instead of listening to me tell them. And I'm like, what are we doing here? Like, if we're just going to read the A through F off of the previous like services note, do we not? I don't know. Why but am no, I, I don't exactly. But there's not a whole lot of I I'm really happy with the A through F bundle and the physician colleagues listening to what we're saying where I am. The pushback I get is when I'm I'm trying to move them forward and they're hesitant and won't explain why. Do you feel like there's fear behind that? Are they afraid of having patients awake and mobile? Do they do we are are we still associating with sedation with acuity? I think in certain ICUs and definitely when you get farther away from the heart ICUs and you go towards like gen surge or abdominal stuff. There seems to be a, yeah, I don't know if they're, you know, sedation is acuity, but they definitely seem scared to move the patient forward before they're perfect. Right. I, I'm really concerned about <clears throat> sedating for ventilator settings, sedating for blood pressure, sedating for certain things that aren't founded indications for sedation, um, <clears throat> that we're not doing awakening trials in many units until their PEEP is less than 10, FO2 is less than 60%. Or I saw, I mean, I was even at a, a conference and a team was presenting um, their their work on mobilizing patients with um, femoral lines for CRT. But they showed their mobility protocol and it showed that they could not mobilize a patient on a ventilator unless their PEEP was less than five and FO2 was less than 60%. And we were like, well, that, then they're going to be ready for extubation. You just if those are your parameters. We feel if we're afraid of taking off sedation and mobilizing patients because of those numbers, which is not found in the evidence, but culturally that is our threshold. That is our fear. How do you navigate those conversations? And you're asking for a reason and maybe they can't articulate. They just feel like they're quote too sick. To oh, be God, the, yeah. The worst reason you ever get is if you ask a fellow, Hey, I think X, Y, Z, I'm ready to do this. I just want to make sure you all think it's an okay idea. Oh, well, I have to ask the attending. And I'm like, 
I get that it's their patient and at the end of the day, it's their decision. But if that's your whole reason for holding this up, then quite frankly, what good are you? Well, but, they're not trained on these things, right? I mean, it's not part of... there's the attending. Yeah. He's a surgeon. He's not a mobilityologist, for lack of a better term. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I think it's, it's frustrating too. What is this? Um, it's frustrating that there isn't a gray area. Okay. So they're on a PIPA 10, they're FIO 270. Yeah. I'm probably not getting them up and marching them in place on the vent, but I don't know why that needs to prohibit me from anything. Right. Like, why not? Why use... does it have to be sedated? Yeah. Or, well, no, they just need to lay in bed at 30 degrees and get turned left and right. I'm like, no, we could, we could do some cardiac chair. I could see if they can get some, some arm and some leg kicking going on. Like just because they're sick doesn't mean they have to do nothing until we can get those numbers down. Maybe the part, Maybe they're, they're not doing anything is why those numbers aren't coming down. Absolutely. I was on site with a team that we'd done webinars and I showed up and they were already really well progressed. They just needed some extra guidance to maximize their mobility. And they had a patient that day one had a PEEP of 14 and 70%. ARDS, aspiration pneumonia, newly intubated. And they were talking about prone and paralyzing him. And he said, well, before we do that, let's see how he does when we get him up. Got him up an hour later in the chair. His, he was down to a 12 and um, 50%. But you don't know until you try how they'll respond to those things. So when you are having this vision, you as a, a nurse, you want to have your patients as awake and mobile as possible. You understand the bundle. You understand what the objective is. What do you wish your colleagues were trained and educated about in order to work collaboratively towards the, that objective? Well... <clears throat> not to throw my colleagues under the bus. I, I no, think it's not that at all. Nope. I think there's plenty of education. I think sometimes the 30 year old, the 30 year in old, they're intubated. They're not moving. Nurses are just stuck. Like I, listen, this is not groundbreaking stuff. There are some things that you can adapt to your 30 years of practice. Just, just do it. I get that it's easier for you. I get that we can just sit in our chairs and watch the devices all day, but that's not the job anymore. Um, I don't know. And this might just be the benefit of being at a very well-funded academic hospital that has a fantastic PT and OT program. The information's out there. There is no, there's no pleading ignorance where I work that you didn't know that they were supposed to be awake and moving and doing stuff. Mm. They even go so far as, you know, most of the surgeons, most of the teams put in a early mobility protocol order. And then that is supposed to free you up to follow those guidelines to do all this. Um, from a less like sciencey didactic thing, the one thing I wish they knew, I wish they knew how good you're going to feel. Like there are a lot of times I cannot make your ventricle stronger. I can sit here and watch you on these devices all day, I'm not physically going to be able to make your heart stronger. I can't make you stop bleeding from your liver. Like whatever like medical problem you got going on, I can't necessarily fix that in these 12 hours, but I can get you up. And you're going to feel better as a nurse when you feel like you did something that day and your patient benefited from it. A lot of times these surgical patients, you don't get to actually quote unquote do much and mobility is a big chance for you to feel like you're going to do something and you're going to feel good at the end of the day about it. I wish I could just like package that up and like give it to these people who are just like scared and timid and don't want to. And I'm like, no, but you're going to love it. You're going to love it. And I wish you would understand that. 
Yeah. And especially the ones that I don't know how to say it, talk the big talk that say, I just want an intubated, sedated patient. I don't want to talk to my patients. I don't care about patients. You know, they have these guards up, these barriers, their hearts are so protected, right? And to me, it just screams trauma. We've been traumatized. We've been seemingly desensitized because it's been so hard and we've seen so many patients fail. We we feel like we're, we can't turn this around. But if they could experience for themselves what it was like to have that kind of fulfillment and connection with their patients, would that change our culture? That's that's a hard question. I mean, because that's a that's a tough line too. You know, you get your patients up and you're moving them and you're keeping them awake. Inevitably, you're going to end up talking to them and learning some more about them. Yep. And once in a while, that's going to bite you in the ass when those don't do well. And you're like, oh, that wasn't just eighty one oh three. That was Bobby Joe, who was a music teacher for twenty five years. And yeah, that does hurt a little bit more. And I don't have a great answer to that question, but tough. Like. You're going to have to figure out how to compartmentalize and deal with that if you're going to be a nurse long term, because it is better for them. And the ones that do make it will make it better because you kept them awake and talked to them and learned about them and all of that stuff that comes like ancillarily, not a real word, like an ancillary thing of mobility and sedation decreasing is you're going to have to talk to these schmoes. Like 12 hours of silence is not going to cut it. Yeah. And does it does it suck sometimes? Yeah. Man, have I woken some patients up and learned, oh, man, you are unpleasant. Absolutely. But what are you supposed to do? Like, tough. They're human. Yeah. And they're in a crappy situation. They're going to have some bad days. <laughs> I, Boy, I was working with that, a team yeah. and, um, and this patient was awake on the ventilator. He'd been newly intubated. He wasn't delirious, but he had, boy, he had some psychosocial problems. He had some baseline PTSD from other things. He had, he was hard of hearing. He had some cognitive impairments at baseline and he was really sick. <laughs> and most of the team had participated in the webinars. They knew what we were working towards. The nurse that took care of that patient that day somehow missed the memo. He didn't participate in any of the webinars. He had no idea what we were working towards. He had no idea why that patient was not sedated. And this is a, a nurse that's a culture leader. And we all know what that means, right? We all, the, every unit has a few of those nurses that they're, they're culturally the leaders. They set the tone for the unit. So the leadership was like, oh, he is a culture leader and he's not sure about this. And he, I heard him in rounds. He was like, this guy is anxious. This guy's upset. I don't want to move him. I don't want to rock the boat. I, why isn't he sedated? He was really upset. And I could feel it was, it was compassion. He was genuinely concerned for him without knowing the risks of delirium, the reality of sedation, the high price of immobility, without knowing that he just saw a guy that was having a bad day and he wanted to fix it with sedation. So I was really nervous. I thought that's this so is correctable. Right. So I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. I'm no, just no, like, yeah, but he, but he that's a good have, situation to have. It, like we can, uh, we can fix that. Oh yeah. That's why we were like, we were excited about that situation. Cause we're like, this is a really good patient to learn from. He is so vulnerable to delirium. If he develops delirium and he's hard of hearing, and he has PTSD. I mean, how oh, you're will screwed. He, how will you get sedation off later? You won't. You won't. So, And you'll start stupid things like Zyprexa and Seroquel in the meantime, which will only make it worse, too. Preach. Amen. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm you so just, you tired just swap of out the set of the chemical restraints. It's not going to work. Today is the day. The hours after intubation, this is the moment to prevent that, to change the course. But he didn't understand that. So I was worried that he would have, he would be exhausted. I'm sure he expected, okay, my patient's intubated. I'm, they should be sedated. I don't have to talk to them. But that wasn't going to be his day. He had to spend a lot of time um, writing things out for him so he could read it. The guy was trying to write to him, discerning his handwriting. I was like, oh, my gosh, if I was a nurse, 
I would be exhausted. You know, that it was, it wasn't just your normal one vented patient period, but two, most patients that are not delirious that are on the vent are easier. They can hear, they can process things. They don't have so much trauma. You know, this is how, this is a whole mix. Anyways, I was nervous and I could tell he worked so hard that day. The next day. If you've been listening to this podcast, you're likely convinced that sedation and mobility practices in the ICU need to change. The ICU community is facing incredible difficulty with the trauma from the pandemic, staffing crisis, and burnout. We cannot afford to continue practices that result in poor patient outcomes, more time in the ICU, higher healthcare costs, and greater workload for the ICU team. Yet the prospect of changing decades of beliefs, practices, and culture across all disciplines of the ICU is a daunting task. How does this transformation start? It can begin with a consultation with me to discuss your team's current practices, barriers, and to formulate a plan to help your ICU become an awake and walking ICU. I help teams master the ABCDEF bundle through education, consulting, simulation training, and bedside support. Let's work together to move your team into the future of evidence-based ICU care. Click the link in the show notes of this episode to find out more. He didn't have the patient again. They, you know, changed assignments and he came up to me. He's like, that was the hardest shift I've had in a long time. And I was like, just wincing. I'm like, I know, but the benefits are, and he's like, but he cut me off. And he said, that was the best shift, probably the best shift of my, of my career. Yay. I actually felt like I did something. Yes. And I was, I just, it, it was so profound to me, I, I guess coming from an awake and walk and I see you, I've done this with so many patients it's not hard to convince people to do that because it's just what we do. But in that moment to say, yeah, you could have had someone completely unresponsive. You could have just turned them Q2, adjust the, you know, hang an antibiotic and that would have been your job. He did so much work, but it showed his true colors that that's what he enjoyed. He actually connected with him and got fulfillment from that connection rather than just exhaustion. Now he did say, I don't need him again tomorrow. I can't do that again tomorrow. And I think that's fine. I think it's that's great tiring. to set boundaries. It oh, is yeah. mentally tiring. But he, but he was enthusiastic about it. And he said, I'm in. Who else are we going to do this with? Let's do this. And he, he, as a culture leader, is now bringing in that enthusiasm with the rest of the team. So when have you experienced this, James? I mean, you've shared with me some really exciting stories just from your own your own creativity, right? You're, you're working in the ADF bundle and you've had some really neat moments with patients. Can you share some of those with me? I mean, there's there's a lot. And I think the fun thing, too, is that the more like I'm, I've got some big examples that I'll talk about. But I do want to throw in the caveat that the more you do it, the more it doesn't have to be. You coach the patient through the breathing trials and extubated them. And they were so thankful that they said they're going to name their firstborn after you. No, it's it's so many of the little ones. Like there was one um, long term pulmonary fibrosis patient. She you know stuck on the vent like we don't really have a plan moving forward. We don't know how we're going to liberate her. Right. But. She was awake. She'd been vented for way too long and she was fine being on full support on the vent. So she was awake and that part was done. She was grouchy and she was unpleasant. And she like was, you know, borderline getting herself a deck strip or something. And, you know, I'm you know very thankful that this hospital allows a lot of one-to-ones for quote unquote soft one-to-ones for these psychosocial patients. Cause I'm like, well, you know, I'm awake and I got 12 hours. I just pulled up a chair and I just, Got out the, the big Sharpie and a big whiteboard and what is going on? And after some discerning, eventually I got the answer. 
I want to feel like me. Bed baths and oral care don't feel like me. So she's on full support. Her numbers look fine. I had a, I was very blessed that day to have a really gung ho and hardworking CNA. So I said, Hey man, we're going to get this lady up and we're going to inch her to the sink. And I want her to brush her own teeth and I want her to wash her face. And I think that will do wonders for her. And it was a challenge. Like she's quite weak and you know, you got the central line, you got the trade, you got all this stuff. And it's not easy, but you get her over there and she does it. And, you know, she's missing half the time. She needs some help. But like, it was long. I think like two hours later, we put her back in the bed and the whiteboard was back out and it was a thank you. I feel human today. And that's just one of those things where like you read that and then you try not look at you, you got the mask on so they can't see it. But on your face, you're like, fuck, <laughs> they are humans and we're supposed to treat them like humans. Wow. Um, and there was like, you know, like there was one too, like you're not always going to have successes. I had a dude on multiple pressers, just multi-organ system, multi-organ failure, just not going well, probably heading towards like a real bad outcome, but he's relatively awake and he's agitated and we're on like a max dose of Dex and they're contemplating just knocking them out. <laughs> And, you know, I'm just, I'm just scrambling here. This dude's got a beautiful window in his room that he can't see. Mm. Yeah. You make a few extra phone calls. Hey man, I know you're doing a treatment on another floor, but when you come back, do we have extension tubing for the bards? Like, is there any way we can get like just two more feet for this guy's vent? Or is there an oxygen to the wall hookup so we can move the vent? You just make those calls. And I remember by the afternoon, we were able to move his whole situation just 90 degrees and turn this guy so he was just staring out the window feeling some warmth on his face and it didn't fix everything we weren't suddenly off the decks but we weren't fidgety we weren't you know banging against the bed yeah it was just a little bit of, of soothing you could do for him there was one i liked a lot too i wrote this one down so i wouldn't forget it um a young lady middle-aged lady she was there for i don't even even matter at this point some sort of like abdominal surgery and it was her first day ptot was her their first case we were there 9 a.m up out of bed relatively max assist i'm trying to help out too but it was called a success she was up She got out of bed. She marched in place. She did all of her stuff. OT was able to help her like comb her hair and all that good stuff. And then very easily, that could have been it, right? Those are your two therapy sessions. That's a big step. Yep. Later in the day, you know, she's communicating with me and she's like, hey, I'd I'd like to use the commode. Like I stood. Can I just stand and use the commode again? And I'm like, yeah, why not? And we got her up. We got her into the commode and then we stood her up. We got her cleaned. And then she's kind of like, I feel really good. And I kind of like, I just walk around in here a little bit and yeah, let's do it. We just did some forward and backward marching. And then I was, you know, well, you know, you can't, we can't leave the room. You're on CRRT, but she's like, well, what about that? And, you know, you feel stupid sometimes when the patients say this, but like, she's like, well, can we just bring that big recliner that I've been looking at in the bathroom out of the bathroom and I can sit in that instead? I'm like, yes, yes, we absolutely can. And she didn't explicitly say it, but I, you know, maybe I want to, but I think she felt accomplished. Like, yeah, I'm in pain. Yeah, I'm still on CRRT. Yeah, I'm still in this terrible corner room with no good windows, but I'm up 
and I'm wiping my own butt and I'm sitting in a lazy boy and I feel like I'm getting better. I feel like I had a good day and I, I can't tell you the science behind it, but I think most nurses would agree. Most clinicians would agree when your patient feels like they're getting better, they tend to get a little bit better. So whatever we can do to encourage those feelings, but I'm and I got totally one more, with, if we got a moment. Oh yeah, absolutely. Hit me with all of them. I'm totally with you that uh, we haven't studied. I don't think the will to live morale. Um, I, I, I swear by showers. I mean, having a shower room in your ICU, I think saves lives. I've seen people go in just in the throes of depression and come out rejuvenated and willing to give another day, another chance. Absolutely. It has to impact your outcomes. I, one, one patient during COVID um, was on Mac ventilator settings with COVID um, and was not doing well. And they really thought it was the end. Um, and this way can walk in ICU. And so per the stupid protocols, the family couldn't come in until that point. So assuming that it, this is the end, my my colleague, um, Louise Bestian, nurse practitioner, called the family in. She left and she was off for a few days. And she assumed that that was the last time she would see him. She came back a few days later and he's extubated. And yeah. she was in complete shock. And she said, what, what, I, you were so sick. That's why we were able to bring your family in. And he said, I needed them. So as soon as his family was there, his ventilator setting started to change. I don't understand that. There's nothing in the science to really support that, but it's undeniable that when you treat patients like human and when they're not, there's something about being in bed and just being stuck that makes you feel so helpless, hopeless, but giving them the chance to work out their own, like fight for their own lives, that has to change mortality beyond just avoiding delirium and IC acquired weakness. There's something spiritual with that. Absolutely. I got two more positive stories if we got a moment. So one of them is an ICU one. This particular ICU, oh, it's the worst too, because there's an NP there. Uh, she's a part of the CT surge team and she knows. She's like, oh, you're the delirium whisperer. And I'm like, oh, fuck. I, I know what that it. means for my assignment. Delirium I'm whisper. on some guy who's like, you know, down to nothing of epi and just chilling, but they can't get him off. They can't get him, you know, he's just that close. And they put me on this dude and this dude was unpleasant. Like during bedside handoff, I'm like, hmm, maybe one of them days, like just snark little comments and all right, I'm going to, can I take the blankets off? I don't know. Can you? Oh, shit. And I'll be quite frank. I didn't like him. Like some of the things he was saying, I was like, oh boy, we have different worldviews. This is going to be a long 12 hours. Uh -huh. And it, like you were saying about that, the, the quality, the, the guy you were your story to an extent it is just so damn draining because you're just sitting there for 12 hours coaching them through things trying to find something to talk about that's not going to bother me or bother him and by the end like we had found like a couple of little things like oh dude you think everything about here is awful because you were flown in from 400 miles away and you think los angeles is the pits well that's fine i'm gonna steer clear of everything but you told me where you where you came from. And I know there's a lot of fish in there. I don't know shit about fishing. And I don't know how you coach this in nursing school, but sometimes little soft lies are okay. Oh, you ever been fishing, kid? <laughs> All the time. Love to go fishing, sir. And he just needed something, someone to talk to him without being medical doctoring. Oh, well, you know, your heart's just not recovering the way. Dude, he didn't give a shit. He just wanted to talk about fishing. He just wanted to be himself. Mm -hmm. And a couple hours into just BSing my way through fishing and boats, you know, we were just sitting there chatting by that point. I figured out the sports teams he liked and 
it was a lot of redirection and a lot of like, no, no, no. Remember, we're not at home. We're, and you got to, you know, keep them there, too. And it's mentally exhausting. Did he have delirium? He, that was the tricky thing. He passed the cam scale, but he definitely was delirious. I've like seen was, it. Yeah. Like he's not, yeah, the rocks don't sink or they do sink. I can't remember the exact question off the top yeah, of my head. He hit a nail with a hammer. But, yeah. but your wife's in the trash can. Yes. Something is still off. Yep. And, you know, he also has a history of substance abuse. And, you know, I don't think we're appropriately dealing with any of that at the moment. But by the end of the day, you know, he was still gruff and I still wouldn't want to go out and hang out with him. But we had like a begrudging respect to where he was like, okay, this kid doesn't suck. I've been able to. And that's the thing, again, these little white lies in nursing that I think are okay. I just stopped telling him when I'm turning down the decks. So I think that was worrying him too. He's like, well, that's what's keeping me calm. You don't know that. So I just go over there and I do it. And then a couple hours later, we've cut the dose in half and he's doing just fine. Cause we're talking about fishing and boats and whatever crap is going to keep him calm and reminding him where he is and why he's here. And I kept, I, I didn't have him the next couple of days. I remember I came back like later in the week and I was like, where's my guy? And they're like, Oh, he left for telly. And I'm like, excellent. Like that was a hard day. I left that day thinking, and I know don't kill me on this one. Like the next day I was like, okay, can I get someone who needs to be paralyzed tomorrow? Cause I am out of it. I am I'm no, tired I'm of the talking. No, I, but, uh, everyone has their max Their you know, yeah. their, their social reservoir can be tapped pretty easily, but you change his outcomes. And maybe the thing too, I'm going to segue right into the next one is it doesn't stop. Once you leave ICU, you could argue it gets stronger. Um, one of my best friends, his wife has some medical issues and she was hospitalized earlier this year for a couple of weeks. And we were all catching up at one point when she got out of the hospital and my, my fiance is a med search tele nurse and they were talking and my friend's wife was saying there was particular nurses who would come in and I knew I was getting up. Like they would, they weren't asking a question. We were going for a walk and I hated it. But then this part still sticks with me now, months later, she said, every single following morning, I felt better. It was like that soreness that you get when you work out. That's what I felt overall on the days after these nurses would come in and not ask if we're going for a walk. They would tell me we're going for a walk. And I think that's something too. It's like, guys, we can't wait to start this in telly. If we start it now, by the time they get to telly, they're ready. They're going to go on these walks and they're going to feel good. Absolutely. A hospital's coming to me and they're, they're wanting to start delirium mobility, you know, protocols, but they think it's going to be easier to start on telly on the medical floors. And I'm like, you're, you're setting those nurses up for failure because if you don't nip it in the bud, if you don't start in the ICU, we're then dumping off the ICU disasters onto them and they get to rehabilitate them. Oh, I got a comment on that one too. So my fiance is a med search tele nurse and I'll come home and she always likes, oh, the big brain ICU nurse. What did you do today? And I'll just tell her something like, oh, you know, like, like one of these days. I'm like, oh, you know, I was really good. I was able to get my patient to the side of the bed and we kicked his little feet and then we stood and she's just, and she laughs sometimes and she goes, you fucking ICU nurses. That's my every day. We are walking all of our patients. My patients are awake and there's four of them. And she just likes to make, because like, this is something I'm excited about. And I haven't been excited about nursing in a long time. Mm. So I just, I get a chuckle when she makes fun of me for the fact that she's like, 
welcome to what every other nurse is doing in every <laughs> other specialty. You're like I had human connection. My humans did something for themselves and acted human. Yeah, <laughs> like, exactly. Okay. So, no, absolutely. But it, 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 but it, but don't take away from that either because changing the culture, doing those practices that is saving lives. That's, that is something to be excited about. And you as one nurse, you're saving lives and you're being ingen- ingenuitive about it. The innovations, rearranging a room, finding things to talk about with them. I and mean, that, that's a whole different kind of challenge. Um, one of my, one of my heroes is a nurse educator in Maryland at Meredith hospital. Her name is Jill Storer. And she's been fighting to change these practices in her unit for a long time. And she calls what you're describing soft skills that nurses need to also be taught and encouraged to use soft skills. Everything you've described are sometimes not what we're trained. We're focused on, um, how to manage the devices and how to titrate the drips and the, those are defined as the ICU nurse um, job descriptions, but the soft skills are essential in order to help patients survive and thrive. And they truly change outcomes. The ability to get someone off a of sedation, to work them through the delirium, to have human touch. To we you know at the beginning we talked about this this culture of like the wham bam big sexy stuff, but the soft skills can actually completely change the trajectory on top of the big life saving things that we're doing. And so what do you wish nurses were provided when they enter the ICU and throughout their time in the ICU? How can nurses be supported in having this approach to care? Well, I think soft skills are super duper important. I don't know how you teach that. I mean, frankly, nursing school doesn't teach anything anyway. It certainly doesn't teach you soft skills. It's it's I don't know how you teach that. But what do I wish they knew? I wish they knew that 99 shifts out of 100 the impella is not going to go wrong. The balloon pump's not going to go wrong. If your CRRT clots, it's five minutes to change it. Like, yeah, there's tips and tricks and all that. Don't get so bogged down learning all of these like one in a million scenarios and just focusing on all the hard skills that you forget. Like they're humans. Mm. And part of the thing that I've had to kind of swallow too is coming from a small community hospital especially during COVID where we were just given kind of open reins to like, Hey, there's more patients, just do what you think is best to then coming to a very well-controlled um, academic hospital where it's like, Oh no, the, the clinicians are making all of the decisions on your drips and your devices and your settings. You kind of look back and you go, well, what am I supposed to do? And it's those soft skills and you need to have them. What do I wish they knew? I I'm just going to repeat myself a little bit, but I wish you knew how fulfilled you're going to be. It, it, you're, I don't understand sometimes how these nurses just sit and watch an ECMO for 12 hours and turn the patients and are basically just being paid for the what if something goes wrong. That just sounds so unfulfilling to me. And if, if that's them, cool, but you're going to have Those a long career. You got to find a way to be fulfilled. And yeah, you can do more. And again, I wish like the nurse you spoke about and like the stories I felt and learned, it's going to feel so good for you. It's going to feel like you have a role to play in this big cog of healthcare. And by having that role, you're going to feel fulfilled and it's going to be fun and exciting to watch your patients get liberated from the devices, watch them get up and walk and smile. And there's going to be so much good in it for you, almost as much as your patients. When you get a patient up to the chair, before their family comes in, before they know they can do that. Oh my gosh, the hugs that they're going to exchange, the tears the family member is going to have. That If that doesn't hit you the same way 
a good resuscitation hits you, you got to look inside and go and wonder why they're both, they're both going to feel good. And you're going to have far more people getting up to chairs than codes. And, and having quality of life after. Yeah. You know, they're on the right course and that you've put them there. Absolutely. I mean, I started my career in an awakened walk in ICU. I thought that was normal to have these moments with patients and I loved it. I just thought I had gone to heaven. I was, you know, the first few years of my career as an RN, it was just so great. And when I became a travel nurse, after I think my first year travel nursing, I was really considering whether or not to stay in the field. I sincerely thought I would stop being a nurse for a few months. I just hit such a low because I was working so hard. And I, I didn't fully identify it at the time, but it was really because I was not fulfilled. I wasn't having human connection. I was just busting myself to keep atrophying bodies somewhat alive in the bed. And then after a few years of that, I went back to the Awaken Walk in ICU and I had humans again <laughs> and I could connect with them. And yeah, there were different challenges, but it was so rewarding, fulfilling that I realized I didn't want to leave nursing. I wanted to leave the conveyor belt approach. And I felt more powerful as a nurse in a wake and walking ICU because I was much more autonomous and not just because of the structure of the team, but because what I did, every little thing I said or did impacted that patient and could determine their, their outcomes. And that's power. And that's the power of nurses. And I love the example that you've said of nurses really turning things around for patients and leading teams to humanize their approach to care. Anything else that you would add, James? Um, yes. Kind of just piggybacking on what you said. I think not only are awakened walking ICUs and all of these best mobility and sedation decreasing practices good for the patient and will be fulfilling, but you said something just jarred in my mind. It makes it not an assembly belt. Every delirious patient is going to require a slightly different, different puzzle. And I think that's a good way to keep your head engaged. Just coming in and titrating the levo and hanging the antibiotics. No one's going to want to do that for 30 years. Mm -hmm. But figuring out new and creative ways, nearly with every case, to fine tune it to that particular person, it's going to keep you stimulated. It's going to keep you wanting to try it again and again, as opposed to just monotonously coming in and doing the same thing over and over. And maybe the last thing I would add is your experience of going off and travel nursing and being like, oh, my gosh, they're all just sedated and in the bed. It made you want to leave nursing. Aside from the rampant death, I think that's a big factor of why so many people in our profession were turned off from nursing during COVID because everyone just ended up sedated, intubated, paralyzed on max pressors. And aside from the sadness of the human loss, man, we weren't doing anything. We were just, we were all on autopilot, intubating, first presser, second presser, paralytic, third presser. And that was just not fun. And if we kind of take that as a microcosm of the problem, I think you're going to get people wanting to stay in nursing when they feel good about it and they feel like they can do something for the patients as opposed to just hanging the drips and titrating the machines. Absolutely. I, I personally experienced it and I've seen that happen in teams that I've worked with. Um, the biggest thing that they can see, they don't always see their data and their outcomes right away, right? but they immediately report an improvement in morale, collaboration, environment, fulfillment. Those are the first things that are notable when they truly practice this evidence-based approach. And it's not just keeping your head in the game, it's keeping your heart in the game. And um, Dr. Oddish, um, I don't know, about 10, 15 episodes ago, um, 
which she wrote the book in shock. She shares that we're so afraid to give of ourselves because we'll think it'll suck us dry. But what actually happens is it, it, um, the gratification, the return is more than we've initially invested. And that's what keeps us in the game. And I hope that some of these teams that I've worked with and teams in the future do studies on retention. I think this is going to be key in building those relationships, improving the workplace environment, the workload is to, um, and, and to be able to retain our clinicians because we're actually going to enjoy our jobs and enjoy our teams. Absolutely. Well said. James, thank you so much for everything you're doing to keep us posted. I want to hear more success stories because I know you're going, going to have them. Thank you. Thank you. Have a great day. a consultation for your ICU, as well as find supportive resources such as the free ebook, case studies, episode citations, and transcripts, please check out the website, www.daytonicuconsulting.com.